So if you've been in church for a little while, you may be familiar with this passage from Luke chapter 10. You maybe have heard it before. I want us to look at the, uh, the priority of Jesus in it. Maybe that's a little bit different than the way you've looked at it in the past. And um, Jesus termed that priority the harvest. And so we're going to use that general idea under three primary headings. I want you to notice the harvest. I want you to engage the harvest. And then ultimately recognize the cost of the harvest. So notice the harvest, engage the harvest, and the cost of the harvest. As we dive in, I want you to first note, it's a small note, but I think an important one, that this is Jesus sending out the 72. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out on ahead of him. This is not just the 12. Why is that important? Well, because I think for a lot of us, we think the harvest is for those professional people, those super holy people, the people who have the gift of evangelism, people who are really good at proclaiming the kingdom, eloquent people, that's, that's who should go into the harvest. But Jesus doesn't send them. This is not a like varsity only thing. This is not like sending the elite team. Jesus is sending the elite team, the varsity team, the JV team, the practice squad, the water boys, the managers, like he's sending everybody, like everybody's going out, right? And, and he's, they're all going out because it's not their deal. It's his deal. Vitally important piece. The, the Lord of the harvest is sending them out into the harvest. He's the one who's doing the work. And so if you feel like you're not qualified, congratulations, you're not. That's great. You're not supposed to be. Uh, because this isn't your harvest anyways. This is his harvest. And so he sends out all 72. Um, most scholars believe that at this point in time, that was the entirety of the group that was following Jesus. So if you think your church is too small, right? Like the, Jesus has been ministering for a couple years, and he has 72 people who are following him because he was not big on church growth strategies. So 72 people, he sends them out ahead to the towns and villages that he himself is going to go to. And, and then in verse 2, he says, it, it says in Luke, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is actually a phrase that is used in several of the Gospels. My favorite is in John chapter 4, another parallel passage. After Jesus is interacting with the woman at the well from Samaria, he's talking to his disciples and he says, uh, he says the harvest is plentiful, but, but he says to them in a command, open your eyes, look at the fields. He, he wants us to be aware of the fact that there's a harvest that's out there ahead of us. He's saying, hey, pay attention, pay attention. There, there's already a harvest that's there. You need to open your eyes to see it. You need to recognize the fact that the harvest is already there in front of you. So the, the question that we should ask is, are we seeing God do this work around us? Meaning, are our eyes open to it? Not is he doing it, because he is doing it. Are our eyes open to it? Or have we, through this season started to look past and around people and started to avoid people. So my wife and I walk in the park across the street from our house on a very regular basis and this weird thing has happened over the last seven months. As we walk down this somewhat narrow path and we start to approach somebody who's coming near us, either they or us move like six or eight or 10 or 20 feet off the path and do this little like kind of wave thing, but we don't really engage one another anymore. You know, we, we were given the term social distancing early on. Can I just say that maybe physical distancing would be better with social engagement, right? Like, we're, we're actually still supposed to see people. People still matter to God. 
and we still need to engage those people in real relationship, we just have to have physical distance. And so there are safe ways to be able to engage the world around us. The question is, have we stopped seeing people? I know for us, that's one of the challenges is, is it's almost like this that's become hardwired into us to say, ooh, people are there, that's bad, go somewhere else. Rather than, is this an opportunity for the har harvest? Open your eyes, look at the fields. A and then once Jesus gets us to notice the fields, see, see what he says, we would think, Open your eyes, look at the field, there's a harvest out there, the fields are, are white with harvest, you need to go out, and, and we, we anticipate, go. go. Go do it, right? You see, the, you see the harvest, go do it. But that's not what Jesus says. What's he say? Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into, this, into his harvest. So a couple things you need to see. First of all, again, this is his harvest, not our harvest. He's doing the work, we're not doing the work. He's responsible for it. Our command is not first to go, our command is to pray. Why? Because the harvest is way bigger than you, it's way bigger than me. And I think we miss that because we have this, um, this way of looking at the world that has us central, and, and we're not. Like we're really, really small in the overall. There are relationships that you're in, even relationships with people that you're connected to, where you're, a, you're just a bad messenger. This often happens with family members who are far from God, where we seek to live out and declare the gospel among our family members, and it's like they're just not able to hear it from us. And so what do we do? Well, we pray that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into his harvest field. We pray that there would be others who would respond to the call of God, who would come into their lives. As we are aware of the harvest, we should be then praying that God would do something with that harvest. We're not called primarily to pray for people to be saved. This is a, a, a paradigm shift for me at least. I, I think in terms of we should be praying for people to be saved. And it's not that, that we shouldn't do that. It's that Jesus is saying that's not your deal. I, the harvest is already there. Like the, the harvest is already happening. You pray for workers. Let me give you an example. Um, in August, there was an article in the New York Times Magazine uh, that was fascinating. I, the cherry harvest this year was like a bumper crop. I don't know if you're aware of that. I was not aware of that. But there were all kinds of cherries to be harvested. But see, here's the problem. The people who typically harvest the cherries are two different kinds of people. One of them were American workers that were primarily quarantined and not able to go out and do it. And the other, the large majority of them, were migrant workers who get short-term work visas to come into the U.S. to harvest cherries. And for a significant period of the summer, all of that, that entire visa program was shut down. And so cherry farmers, a, a subset of people that I've never engaged with in my life, um, cherry farmers were looking out at the fields, this bumper crop of cherries, and they're saying, Send workers. Like, all the cherries are here. Like, there's no blight. The, the weather's been good. Everything's fine. But if they're out there too long, they're all going to rot on the trees. Send workers into the harvest, right? That's the heart of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, there, there's a harvest that's already out there. Your goal is not to figure out the harvest. Your goal is to pray that there would be workers. 
that there would be those who would go and harvest in the fields. So Jesus says, open your eyes, look at the field, pray for the, the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters into the field. So notice the harvest. But then he says, and engage the harvest yourself. So yes, after you've prayed for the harvest, then go. Why? Because the people that you are going to engage with are likely people that someone else has been praying for workers to be going into the harvest field for, right? So go, go back to your family member. Uh, if you have family members that you feel that you're not a good, uh, a good vehicle for them to experience the love of Jesus, you're praying that somebody else would step into that. Don't you want that person to listen when God calls them, right? Like, of course you do. Uh, we, we want other people to answer the call of God. And so Jesus is then saying, and you should too answer the call of God. So he says in verse 3, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. And then he starts to give a, a, a series of instructions. There's a, a, a fascinating uh, kind of uh, unpacking of that. We're going to do a little bit more work in that uh, in the dailies this week as well. Um, it, but, but he's going to give them kind of a, a, a rundown. So I'm just going to summarize for us. He, he starts by saying that we need to be people who are praying blessing. So you see it um, in, in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. So, so he says, go into homes and pray blessing. And, and, and that in a very specific way is praying blessing over a specific house. So translated, I would say we should be praying specific blessing over specific people. Like, it's great for you to pray generally, but as you go to engage the harvest, there should be specific names of people that you're saying, God, bless this person in this way. And I think the best way to say that is a really, really simple question. Just go to somebody and say, hey, could I pray that for you? As you're in conversation with people and needs come up, you just say, hey, can I, can I pray for you? Do you know that almost everyone, no matter how far away from Jesus they are, if you go to them and you say, could I pray for you? Like 99 out of 100 say, sure, sure, that's great. And so you have this opportunity to pray blessing over people. So what Jesus is saying is, please hear it, you don't go into homes and pray conviction. You're not going into homes and praying fire and brimstone. You're going in and you're praying blessing. God, bless this home. Bless this family. Bless these people. As you interact with your neighbors and they're saying, we're concerned about sending our kids to school. It's been really, really difficult. Or uh, we're not sure how to handle our work situation. Or we're concerned about finances. Or uh, we, we think the, the whole country's a mess. And you just say, yeah, can I, can I pray for you? Really simple. And as you pray for them, there's this response that Jesus describes in verse 6. If a son of peace is there, he says, a, a, a person of peace. What's a person of peace look like? Well, a person of peace looks like, first of all, someone who is receptive to you praying over them. Um, not just a, a willingness, but they welcome the investment that you make in them. When you find someone who welcomes that investment, you're, you're on the first step to finding a person of peace, somebody that you can be investing in. Um, a person of peace is somebody who is uh, receptive to re receiving Jesus. What, what, I don't mean um, praying to receive Jesus as personal savior. I mean uh, 
glad for the work of Jesus in their life. Second Corinthians chapter three, Paul makes a distinction in those of us who are followers of Jesus. He says, uh, this may be, this may hurt you a little bit. He says that you smell, so sorry to say that. <laughs> but he, he says that all of us who are followers of Jesus smell and we are either to some the smell of life and to others the smell of death. So if you smell the same to everybody, you might not smell like Jesus. You may smell like something else, right? But if you smell like Jesus, there's going to be a, a, a difference in the way people receive that smell. Some people will be repelled and some people will be receptive. A person of peace is receptive. They, they smell Christ as life on your life. And then, get this, they serve you. Now, this is so backwards to the way that we think about the gospel. Because most of us have been trained in a model where we go into a community and we serve the people in that community. We have a, a service-based way of doing evangelism, which is great. Nothing wrong with that. We can go in and be a blessing to people. But that's not the model of Jesus. Isn't it great? He says, go in and sleep on their couch and eat their food. Like, that's, that's the way that you're supposed to do this. Don't, don't bring anything on your own. You don't have to supply a bounce house. You don't have to bring candy. You don't have to, like, do a cookout. Like, you just, you show up, you knock on their door, and you say, I'm sleeping here tonight, right? And if they say yes, that's a person of peace. And if they say no, that's probably not a person of peace. That's not that you got to sleep somewhere else tonight, right? So he's, he says, go in and then, then eat their food. Engage with them. Real relationships have, uh, have, have both sides to them. They're not just you serving someone. It's also them serving you. There's a, a back and forth to a real relationship. And, it, and it's fascinating because Jesus is pushing into us being in real relationship with real people the same way that he was. This is not a targeted thing. This is not a, I'm going to drop in, have a conversation with you on your front porch, leave you a track and keep moving. This is a in relationship with people. They're serving me. I'm serving them. We're, we're living together. And so that ties into the fact that this is a long-term relationship. What persons of peace should be engaged in long-term relationships with us and us with them. It's not a matter of getting to a place where all of a sudden we can have a conversation about Jesus. We wait and see what happens. And if they are not interested, then we just drop them and move on. These are real relationships. People that you enjoy being with and who enjoy being with you. And in those relationships, Jesus becomes a, a, a piece of that relationship as we live out our faith with, faith with authenticity in front of them. And then ultimately they become gatekeepers. Jesus is saying, go to that house and park yourself there. That's the couch you're going to sleep on. That's the food you're going to eat. And then allow them to be the conduit to the rest of the community. They already have relationships. So allow their relationships to provide a gateway for you to be able to engage in relationships. Real relationships with real people. Don't jump around, d dive into a real relationship with someone. When you have a relationship with a person of peace, one of the things you're going to notice is that casual conversation almost always leads to meaningful conversation, which almost always leads to spiritual conversation. Now, I don't mean that that happens every single relationship, every single time you have a conversation with them, but I'm saying a person of peace 
it's very natural for your casual conversation to get meaningful and your meaningful conversation to get spiritual. And if that's not happening, it's very possible that's not a person of peace. That's not the person that you need to be investing in in, in a long-term way. But if that conversation leads to a spiritual conversation again and again and again, and that person is not interested in following Jesus, you're not just moving on. You're, you're diving into that relationship. Because remember, Jesus is calling us to pray for the harvest before we go. It's not all about you. You don't have to save the world. Jesus is in charge. He's, he's the Lord of the harvest. And so he says, value these people who are willing to be valued by you. All that sounds really nice. It's a great model. We can step in. It's like really, really great. Except there's this, this thing that he said in verse 3 that we jumped over. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. I grew up in the city. I don't know a lot about lambs and wolves, but the little bit that I know about lambs and wolves is that um, lambs don't usually win that battle, right? Um, you very rarely see a wolf like running away, yelping, licking its wounds, and like, oh man, I got into a tangle with a lamb. Got me. You know, every time that lamb just gets me. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? Uh, like, the wolves tend to win those battles. And so Jesus says, go, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. And then as he explains this process, there, there's this great conversation about the kingdom of God coming near, but then in verse 10, there's this other conversation. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and, and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. There will be times... If you are taking the gospel into the world, if you are truly proclaiming the kingdom, there will be times that you're rejected. Jesus taught that that would happen. He told his disciples there's a few sure things, and one of those sure things is that you're going to be hated. Uh, there, there will be people who are going to reject you. You're going to go out as lambs uh, among the wolves. So be, be aware of that. And actually allow that to be a marker for the clarity of the gospel that you're proclaiming. See, I think a lot of us believe that we need to be Jesus' PR firm because, you know, this is a very tolerant world that we live in and the message of Jesus seems kind of narrow to us and so we want to try to, like, change the message to make Jesus, like, a little softer, a little, like, you know, easier around the edges. But see, here's, here's the thing. Jesus didn't do that. Like, Jesus wasn't overly concerned about whether or not people thought that he was the most popular or that he was going to win the popularity contest. In fact, uh, when he got too popular, he seemed to preach a little bit more aggressively, right? If you, uh, especially the Gospel of John, you read through the Gospel of John, and it's like, as the crowds grow, Jesus starts to say things that are really offensive, and then the crowds get small, and then the crowds start to grow again, and then he says things that are really offensive and starts to run people off. You know, there's the, there's the sense that Jesus is saying, like, the harvest is out there, God's the, the Lord of the harvest, and I'm not trying to create a false harvest, right? I'm not trying to, to pick fruit that's not ready. I'm not trying to pick fruit that's, that's not fruit. We're going to narrow it down to the actual people. And so for us, that means that we need to be careful to not water down the gospel so much that Jesus can be added on to everything. There's actually a name for that. If, um, if you're in conversation with someone and all of their current beliefs remain exactly intact, and they're able to add Jesus on top. It's actually called syncretism. 
It's a heresy in the church that says that Jesus doesn't have to be Lord. Jesus can just be a, a nice add-on. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that we should have to reorient our lives around Jesus. We should be changing things because of him. And so there's going to be times because of that that we're rejected. And, and that's part of the process. But Jesus is telling us it's not primarily our concern. God's the Lord of the harvest. And so we don't have to go save people. We don't have to feel the weight or the burden of having convinced people. Rather, we just go with the gospel and people do what they do. I, I love the way that he describes it. At the very beginning, he, he says that uh, he's sending them into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And at the end, when he's talking about wiping the dust off of his feet, he says, and tell them the kingdom of God has come near. Explain that this is not about you. This is about the kingdom of God and that he himself is the one who's going. So there is the reality of rejection that's part of the cost of the harvest. But the other cost uh, for most of us is not going to be primarily rejection or being ostracized by people. That's going to be part of the process. But for most of us, the, the central cost of the harvest is in a very practical way. It's our time. It's our schedule. Jesus is saying be in real relationship with real people because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So be in real relationship with real people. Guess what? Real relationship with real people takes real time. Like our, our lives have to be oriented in such a way that we're spending real time, priority time, with people who are far from God. And the challenge for most of us in the church is that the vast majority of our time, the, the real valuable heart deep time, is spent with other believers. We don't prioritize relationships with people who don't follow God. And Jesus is saying that should be a priority. The cost of the harvest for many of us is being willing to say, I'm going to reorient the way that my time and energy is spent so that I would be engaged with people who need to know Jesus. In a setting like South Central Pennsylvania, it's very easy for us to live all of life and never have real deep, meaningful relationship with people who are, apart, who are far from God. We, we can just choose to put other believers around us. And a lot of us do. Jesus is saying, this should be a priority. This is more central than whether a vaccine's coming. This is more central than who's going to fill that vacant seat in the Supreme Court. This is more central than social justice and all of the race and divisions that are in our, in our world. This is, this is central. And so make space for it. Prioritize it. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 that, th that as we are changed by the gospel, he uses this term in verse 14, that the love of Christ compels us, or it can also be translated controls us. That when, when we experience the love of Jesus, that love takes over our heart in such a way that the decisions that we make about life 
are made by him through him, through that lens. The love of Christ controls and compels us, moves us forward. And Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. As he calls us into the harvest, and as he calls us to sacrifice for the harvest, understand that he himself is called into the harvest. That he took on flesh to become one of us. And that his sacrifice is far greater than any of the sacrifices that we would make. We might be rejected. Most likely we're going to have to reorient our schedules. But Jesus left heaven. Philippians 2 tells us that he set aside his rights as God in order to become one of us. And he didn't just end there, but he took on the fullness of sacrifice, dying an awful, brutal death apart from the Father on the cross, that we would have life. And so it's that love that controls and compels us. As we recognize that the sacrifice of Jesus, we're invited into a, a response into the harvest because he's the Lord of the harvest. So why is this important? I want to just give you three reasons as we wrap up. First one is this. We can get the message of Jesus. You, you can learn to draw all of those little smiley faces. They're not that difficult. You'll figure it out. It, you, you can learn to explain the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's not complex to learn the message. But if the harvest doesn't become a priority, the message just stays with you. We have to be people who believe Jesus that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. We have to be people who believe Jesus. The cherries are out there to be harvested, but we need workers to go out and harvest them or they're going to rot on the trees. We need to make the harvest a priority. And so knowing the message without having the priority of the harvest doesn't help us. The second one is this. I think now specifically, it's important for us to open our eyes and look at the fields. Because this might be the biggest harvest opportunity of our lifetime. I know you're sick of hearing that this is an unprecedented time. I'm sick of hearing it too. Uh, that that this, is, this is all different and everything's new and it's never been like this before. And, that, and that's true. But here's the other side of that. Could it be that this isn't just an unprecedented time, but it's also an unprecedented opportunity? That if we would get our eyes off of the stuff that the rest of the world is concerned about, and instead of taking polarizing positions that are putting us in one team or the other, hurting over here or hurting over here, not hurting, hurting, instead of those things saying, my eyes are going to go to the harvest, I'm going to look at, look at the fields, open up our eyes, look at the fields, and recognize that people on the left and the right need to know Jesus. That, that people who want to handle race and injustice one way and the other way, that they all need to know Jesus. That people who are bold about the virus and afraid of the virus, that they all need to know Jesus. And so if we would get our eyes up just a little bit further and stop being concerned primarily about what the rest of the world is concerned about, we can enter into what I believe to be an unprecedented opportunity because people need footing. They need surety. They, they want to put their feet on something solid. And increasingly, it seems like every day that the, the solid parts of the world just are falling away. There's no solid place to stand. But Jesus is that solid place. 
And so I believe now more than ever, there's an opportunity for us to step into the harvest that we need to, we need to take. And then the third one is this, back to what I said at the beginning. We're distracted. So right now, we need to hear Jesus. I, I, I love the way he says it in John chapter 4. Open your eyes. Look at the fields. Pay attention. Because you're distracted by so many other things. And so we need to be those who, again, not saying those things aren't important, not saying they don't mean something, but setting them aside as secondary to say, let's focus on what's primary. Let's make sure that if nothing else, we're going to be people who are concerned about the harvest. And so I want to encourage you this week, really, really simple. Find somebody and ask that simple question. Can I pray for you? In the conversations you're having with people, some need comes up, some concern comes up. Some, it, if you're having a real conversation with people, there's going to be a need that you can pray for. And just very simply, hey, can I just pray that for you right now? Just let me pray over you. And when you do, um, don't, don't pray the, like, the 15-minute long epic prayers. Pray the, like, the 30-second, the like, Jesus, come bless this person prayer. You're going to have a much better opportunity to see if they're receptive to the blessing of God if you bless them in 30 seconds. If you bless them in 15 minutes, they're not going to be receptive one way or the other. It's just the way it goes. So, so, but take time this week. Just look for an opportunity. And I guarantee if you will open your eyes and you will look at the fields, I guarantee you will find opportunity to pray a prayer of blessing this week. Just very simple. As simple as that. Step in and invite God to move. 